1: Welcome everyone to Spark My Muse, this is Lisa Colon Lay. Today, I'm going to do a little introduction for my conversation with Robert J. Monson. If you've listened to the podcast over the last several years, you'll know that Robert has been a repeat guest on my podcast. We've done several projects together. I always enjoy conversations with Robert. He has a heart that is after God's heart. I find him to be a kindred spirit and a brother. If you are not familiar with Robert, I will be leaving all Robert's contact information, how you can get connected with him, in the show notes for this episode at the Substack page. You can find a connection to that by going to sparkmymuse.com and clicking on a link to that for this episode. For those who don't know, or those who might need an update, Robert Monson is a musician, a writer, podcast host, co-director of Enfleshed, which we'll get into in the episode, And a graduate of United Theological Seminary, with special research interests at the intersection of Black liberation theology, womenist theology, and what it means to become soft in a cruel world. These interests matter particularly to Robert on account of growing up as a Black atheist in the United States of America. Burning questions surrounding race, religion, shared humanity, and masculinity drive Robert in the academy. Robert is writing the chapter on violence in the books of Samuel for the Shiloh Project. We will be getting into this in our conversation, and I just want to make you aware that the audio isn't going to be the same that you're used to. I had some technical difficulties. Robert was kind enough to record this on his end for me and send me that file. I hope you enjoy this, and thank you so much, Robert, for your friendship, camaraderie, and your support. of course, I'm always reading your newsletter, and um, I was thinking about what you were talking about, pain, and I was hoping we could hit on some of that, too, as well as what you're doing with the Enfleshed and the Shiloh Project. And now that you're done with school, which was this giant, giant thing, and you're, you're writing about, as you always have been, it's kind of taking things slow, being yourself, being soft. And there, there's going to be people who are like, yay, Robert's back on. And there'll be people who haven't heard of you yet. <laughs> and so maybe just a little bit talk about this kind of way you are in the world, which I find so beautiful. I mean, that's why I love just checking in with you all the time. It is a refreshment to my heart and um, just, you know, what's up with you?
2: What's up with me? Well, first... I always love getting an invite to spark conversation with you, uh, pun intended. (laughs) And I am, uh, I guess I'll say a lot of things about myself. I am uh, a Black man committed to liberation uh, of all people. That is, you know, the heartbeat that I have. And to that end, I am a theologian. Uh, a budding scholar uh, if you will a poet a writer now author um, and uh yeah and so th- those are some things that i do in serving that vision of liberation and that that eschatological vision that i have for humanity which is rest peace and love mm-hmm. uh primarily and uh i think Uh, going back to something you said a moment ago, like, you know, how do I show up in the world? I think I show up in the world as soft. That is the thing that I preach about often. And it's something that I'm committed to, especially because softness and maleness typically don't go in the same sentence. And usually when men (laughs) are thinking about who they want to be, how they want to show up in the world. There's a lot of uh, words related to resilience, to strength, to Mm -hmm. domination. And I have just really committed myself to saying and believing that success looks like increased softness Mm -hmm. um, and contemplation as the years go by. And I want to know how soft I can be. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I want to know, what I can do to create avenues that other people can be soft in the world. Oh. And yes, yeah, the other thing that I would say is graduating of uh, the master, I am so happy <laughs> um, <laughs> to have that off of my back. Um, um, <laughs> and uh, graduating was uh it was jubilation. <laughs> and uh oh. and um, since then just really continue to do the work of scholarship, both presenting at academic conferences and uh, getting my work um, and my writing in different uh, places. So that's that's a bit about me. I'm a little bit all over the place, but a (laughs) soft dude nonetheless.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To that point, you wrote recently, part of my daily pain is being someone who has and seeks to maintain a tender heart. I have always been a a softy deep down, I feel and experience emotions in deeply meaningful ways. And I wonder if that is always a good thing. This world isn't kind to those who are soft, those who wrap themselves in kindness like a blanket, don't get the promotion at work. Being kind can put you in a giving position in every relationship without so much as a thought of being given to in return. It's true. It's one of these things that in growing in likeness, if we want to be become disciples of jesus or if we want to have the fruit of the spirit that is to have a tender heart right but that in this world you could be a, become a doormat or you can become taken advantage of or you can be seen as gullible or weak often those things are put into negative categories or right. disrespected categories right mm-hmm. and to live a different way or even to slow down and do that too right so so these are all these counter cultural not rewarded culturally things, and maintaining that takes a diligence really, a kind of diligence. Is it getting easier as you get older? do you feel the pressure mounting in different ways against you?
2: Oh, that's such a good question i um I do I, that just made me emotional i I do feel in some ways uh embracing softness as an ethic is easier. Some of it is simply because you don't have the energy that you yeah. used to to put up the front to put up the mask, to be this 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 body double of yourself, um, this tough person, but I think also the pressure mounts in other ways because as you get older and I don't know everyone's uh, identity, but being a Black man in this world, there mm-hmm. are these offenses that rise up almost daily interacting with a world that mm-hmm. isn't committed to my thriving. Black men killed in the streets, right? And microaggressions on the daily, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there is this pull to live a domineering way, mm-hmm. um, to live... a you know, get your lick back type of way of the streets, right? It I feel that pumping through my veins as I get older yeah. in surprising ways. Yeah. And slowing down and going in reverse, um embracing that kindness, I think it it is difficult, right? Like yeah. it is I don't want to spin it as if that that is something that people can easily access Mm -hmm. depending on your marginalized identity or multiply marginalized identity. It um, takes work. It takes a lot of tears. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, I love the, the part of my writing that you just read. Uh, We know that kindness does not save people ultimately. Um, And I think that that's the hardest part is Mm -hmm. You know, I I continually go back to the image in my mind and the audio of Elijah McClain Mm -hmm. uh, being killed a few years ago. And this Mm -hmm. was such a tender, soft-hearted, young Black man Mm -hmm. killed in Aurora, Colorado, um, neurodivergent, I believe. And uh, he was brutally killed by the police. And in his final breath, crying out were cries of, I forgive you. Every time I read those transcripts and I continually read them um, as a way to honor his memory and his legacy, I see that softness did not save Elijah McLean. That breaks me. That breaks my heart. It fuels me in the activism and the work that I do. But I know that being soft-hearted did not save Elijah yeah. And so that that's just some of what I think about when I hear that.
1: Such an important point. It also being soft and tender doesn't save us from anger. Truly. Um, and, mm-hmm. and feeling hurt and feeling beaten up uh, and mm-hmm. being under the boot. Um, I think that it's not to say, Oh, everything is just, is fine with me. That it's easy to forgive your, um, going to be okay with how things are and not ever stand up for yourself or something like that. That's not what it means to say that you're soft to, is that you won't allow the world to make you into someone who's cruel, someone who's brittle. And you write, my affirmation is my pain is worth being explored as I journey toward wholeness and beauty. I have people who love me and people will help me explore my pain too. And with that, I, I wanna talk a little bit about, um, you're talking about getting older and, and not having the energy anymore. I, boy, can I relate to that, uh, about I'm letting listening. certain things go, right? <laughs> also, uh, your issue with chronic pain plays into this because there's a lot of people who deal with different kinds of chronic pain. And this is worth mentioning that you have to take your breaks when you have it because because you have life has to be manageable enough that you can survive it's a teacher this this pain is a teacher um and for us to be sustainable in our lives at all really we have to really learn from our pain and learn to be soft and accepting of it and how we have to adjust how we live maybe you could speak to to some of how that plays in
2: yeah i think it even plays into the the name of the newsletter i wrote it it's called musings from a broken heart and I. Think about the wisdom that I've learned of the many ways my heart has been broken and my body has been broken, I think of softness because when you have chronic pain, but you are also in a capitalistic society that is ever pushing you to prove that you are worth it right to produce something of merit right to by the time you're 40 you should have these accolades you should be Mm. able to buy a car you know and put a down payment on it easily and there are all these things that are pushing you to be something and prove something and softness is my way of saying in a world that is trying to get me to fit And with this hard ethic, this ethic of being that is dehumanizing, softness Mm. reminds me who I am. And I can be soft with my body when it's, I think of being attuned to my body, knowing when it's time to lay down and knowing when enough is enough. In knowing that I can't uh, produce anything more than I can right now, because pain mm. is uh, racing through my body, telling telling me I can't go further. Mm. Um, and when pain is telling me you must lie down now, and then having the wisdom to hear the warning signs before we even get there, right? Softness keeps me attuned with. What's going on with me emotionally, physically, spiritually? And the more that I tune that way, I can give softness to you and in my interactions with you because then here's a fruit of that. When you don't respond to my text uh, right away, I can give you softness because I, I'm not assuming ill intent to you. I don't know what things your body may be telling you. Like I cannot see into the depths of the heart, right? And so I think of it in that way, softness with my own body, with my own schedule, Mm -hmm. um, with having chronic pain and illness, I schedule large breaks in my day. I don't schedule things back to back to back because that's not treating myself with gentleness and kindness. Mm -hmm. And so I don't expect it of y'all either.
1: Yeah. Um, So that's really well said is we have to offer it to ourselves first for real.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Our ability to give grace comes out some vacuum. We're not extending to ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, You know, that's in my own life. That's my unkindness has stemmed from my own unkindness to myself, and I haven't realized it. Maybe we can pivot a little bit to violence in the books of Samuel and what's up with enfleshed. And maybe you can, open that up for
3: us a little oh i will
1: break
2: them up i'll break them up and flushed
1: yeah.
2: is an organization that i have been privileged to join uh in august and september uh as a co-director i love the work that they do uh, i have two other co-directors that i uh lead alongside with M and anna And they have created this organization for some years that's concentrated on collective liberation and uh, collective uh, agency and and wondering how can we be whole together. Mm -hmm. And they do some beautiful work in the forms of content that is enriching spiritually across the spiritual spectrum. They produce a lot of good uh, liturgies for churches So just a number of different things, and I really was uh, taken aback by the the scope of the work that they do and how thoughtful that they are about the work Mm -hmm. uh, in the world and creating a table where people can really find rest and nourishment, which speaks Mm -hmm. to me as a contemplative and an activist. Uh, You know, I have that Howard Thurman heart within, and so they brought me on to Bring my beautiful Blackness to the table. Um, (laughs) Like Help us in this arena. And so, yeah, just really, really enjoying that. And I do, I write a lot of content for them too. And so, yeah, I just, it's beautiful. I I could gush on them. And then (laughs) um, this written work uh, called The Bible and Violence comes through another organization, uh, the Shiloh Project. Mm-hmm. And I became a, acquainted with them through Twitter, actually. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, I tell you, Twitter can be a lifeline, y'all. Uh, <laughs> social media can be a whole of beep, but, <laughs> but community can be deeper still. Amen. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Shiloh Project is this organization that is committed to fostering research around the phenomenon of rape culture in history and throughout the globe, how it exists um, in religion, in the various ways religion can participate in this, biblical interpretation can participate in it. And also, you know, something that they do is looking at that complex Ways that different identities uh, intersect with it, right, including gender, mm. sexuality, race, and class. Mm. And so they put a call out for this this huge uh, volume that they were writing on the Bible and violence. Mm. and it really appealed to me because they essentially wanted uh scholars to join in this huge this this big uh scholarly work, but also accessible work on the Bible and violence, looking at themes of violence throughout the Bible, rape culture in the Bible, you know, various aspects of hate. Mm. And so there are over a hundred chapters in in the work. (laughs) And part one is focused primarily on the text, the Hebrew and Greek Bibles, um, as well as some apocrypha and deuterocanonical works and Mm. Dead Sea Scrolls and some Gnostic texts and their part two is how those biblical texts uh, have been used in violent ways or to mm. violent ends. Um, yeah, the chapters are beautiful. Like the, the topics are beautiful. I personally am writing off first and second Samuel coming at it as a black liberationist and illuminating that, that text. So that's a bit about the project.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it's bigger than i first thought as i was looking into it like there's mm-hmm. a lot going on here
2: it's a lot like i would say even i am doing first and second samuel mm-hmm. and people might think that they would know what i would write on in these chapters because david is right there <laughs> david is right there but there's actually someone there might even be two people that are breaking up issues related to david David mm-hmm. has his own section mm-hmm. uh, in this work so I'm actually illuminating everything else in the text which is mm-hmm. surprising it's like there's enough here uh that wow. we don't even have to use David to say that there are some things that would challenge
1: us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow the violence in the Bible is it's really interesting because you can tell kind of the the way a person is by the guy that they worship right and mm, say that, Lisa. They, <laughs> they, <laughs> preach that talk about a warrior God and a violent God. It's not by accident, i you know, I don't think it's formed them spiritually. it's it plays a part in a mentality or way of being that violence is to them unavoidable or excusable or justified or on the table for sure, right? And so. These images of God as violent himself, I'll say, (laughs) or punitive, wrathful, and ready to kill for exact violent types of punishments is a kind of worldview, is a kind of thing that sometimes I think people don't realize that there are other ways of looking at God and what the Bible is saying about violence. I'm just wondering, is your approach laying it all out? Is it coming from a liberation point of view? Could you a little bit give us a sneak peek? On yeah,
2: yeah, d- d- <laughs> yeah. I think you know I'll give the sneak peek even into the entrance into uh, the research and the writing. So yes, I am approaching this as a liberationist, and mm-hmm. so I am unapologetically biased, and I think that that's helpful to note because everyone is. Mm-hmm. Um, Just some will not admit it, um, you know. (laughs) And so, yes, I have a very definitive thought about Imago Dei, the sacredness of humanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am bringing that to the text. I am a historian, yes. I am committed to textual integrity. uh, But I also have very clear thoughts about, again, about humanity's expected end. And so when I come to uh, the text, I ask questions from my social location and as a liberationist. And Mm so just illuminating part of my thought process was I came to the the text, yes, researching as as much as I could on this rich text, but also asking questions related to power dynamics. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Who is speaking and who is silenced? Is a very clear indicator of power dynamics. Who is in the background and who is in the foreground? And sometimes when we're doing biblical interpretation, we assume a lot, right? If you hear thoughts on first and second Samuel, it's about David, good, Saul, bad. That's what most people would think about when this is flattened out, and that's most preaching. Yeah. David is a good king, Saul is bad. But what I come to the, the text asking question, who said he was good? That's one. How do we know that Saul is bad? And who gets to determine that? Who is the arbiter of that? Right. Like they, you know, somebody has to start the uh, dialogue and I'm curious. I also am very curious about the Philistines, particularly in this book, but also throughout uh, much of the Hebrew scriptures and I did this talk recently, and I asked people to think, close their eyes, and to think of what you picture when you think of the Philistines. Typically, what people began to describe were ugly, giant people. Right? Like when you have a kid's story Bible, are the Philistines beautiful to you? No, they're not. (laughs) They never are. And what I've been curious about and asking and interrogating is what then could that lead to in terms of violence? We know that those people we consider ugly, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: we don't have compassion on them. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And so we don't think anything when they are slaughtered, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're grotesque Mm -hmm. uh, to us. And so just really asking questions about the other that most people cannot tell me facts about the Philistines or the Amalekites. They just have this picture of evil, darkness. That's not the fullness of who they are. Mm -hmm. So when you see Philistines slaughtered quickly, Mm -hmm. you know, at the beginning, David, you know, brings his head. It has consequences, right? We don't think things about the Philistines. And then later at the end of 1 Samuel, Uh, Saul is beheaded. Mm. And uh, we see, you know, there's a through line that I see as a liberationist in terms of violence, both explicit and implicit. So.
1: Yeah. And as well as a liberation theologian and being informed by that, you're also very informed by women's theology. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of your studies and your scholarship. And Maybe just speak to how that specifically informed you, because that is, especially just in changing the dialogue about how violence works, how oppression works, how power works, it helps us ask the best questions about who's benefiting. And some of the most important questions have been given to us by the insights of womenist theologians, mm-hmm. where it, un- it unravels and it unpacks everything upside down from the power structure so you're thinking oh right right you haven't considered any of that why because we've only been hearing from the people at the top
2: mm. listen I love me some womanist theology because womanist helped me to begin to ask these type of questions right they they do have this vision for a society both for black people and people at large of of peace right like but on the journey there they can be uh, you know mitzi smith wrote on uh, being iconoclastic on the way to that right and not holding things so sacred that they cannot be interrogated or torn down if they are not helpful or if they are hindering liberation right and so mitzi smith has been formative in that and asking questions, even of the Bible that I didn't even know that we were allowed to ask. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint, I'm like, wait, yeah. we can ask these? And uh, Will Gaffney uh, has some of the most beautiful work on asking really hard questions cool. about the Bible and using sacred imagination, prophetic imagination to fill in gaps. And really womanists have allowed me to see a larger tapestry. When I come not just to a sacred text, but also into any situation with people. When I hear something, when I read something, mm-hmm. I'm asking whose perspective is this from?
3: Exactly.
2: Like who called the shots? And maybe it's exactly what is true. Maybe it's exactly what I was thinking, but often when I ask that question is whose perspective is this from? It tilts all of my preconceived notions about a situation on its head almost like
3: yeah. when
2: i ask that whose perspective is centered here mm. okay
3: yeah
2: is that the most liberating perspective to in a situation there are a lot of people you know if there something happens there's five bystanders it's helpful to ask whose story is the most important Ooh. there
3: mm-hmm.
2: right if the bystander knew the victim, well, then they will have a different perspective on what transpired. And so just asking those those questions are so helpful as womanists bring their, their biased thinking Ooh. to interpreting. And it's beautiful
1: to me. Yeah. If anybody brings us the good news, it's the feminist.
3: Yeah, truly. <laughs>
1: the good news the the thing that i've learned the most the deepest is who's benefiting by this story by this perspective Mm -hmm. it is not typically questioned some just narrative or generalized common knowledge myths or accepted wisdom Mm -hmm. that we go wait a minute who said that why would they who benefits that we can begin just ordinarily calling that into question and going is this democracy this is the word democracy that like I should say people in power hold it up as if it means something and mm-hmm. it's completely meaningless because it means people like me <laughs> people like me not anybody else we want anybody else to participate necessarily having their power but democracy is for people like me
3: <laughs> yes.
1: and so it isn't democracy right that we say we value people's voices and, and various voices and various perspectives and that more viewpoints and more eyes on the situation from different locations will help us solve the biggest most important problems and then what do we have
3: yeah
1: Uh, you know myopic vision over and over and over again and this myth of democracy as if as if it's meaningful in our Mm. country is meaningless and so that has to be disrupted all the time and be like But you haven't even listened to anyone else except for this same tone over and over and over. (laughs) Yeah,
2: there are implications, right? I'm listening to you and really thinking, you know, it's it's interesting to use the word democracy. Mm
3: -hmm. And I
2: think of the implications of not asking questions biblically Mm
3: -hmm. have
2: compounded impact, right?
3: Mm -hmm. The January
2: 6th insurrection Mm -hmm. was led by people who think very specific things about God in the Bible right they, they weren't devoid of quote-unquote god knowledge right mm-hmm. which is you could see the the spiritual gatherings you could mm-hmm. hear the hymns being sung the, the spiritual songs being sung mm-hmm. they are using this text too and they think mm-hmm. things and so for me that's why it's important to say who is benefiting here
3: mm-hmm.
2: to ask when it's a hard saying it's a text of terror when God says, go into this town, you know, this is in for Samuel, slaughter everybody, man, woman, and child. Ooh. And certain, a lot of conservative ones are like, yep, yeah, it's because God said, absolutely. It's what I know for sure. You can't even question it because what is there to question? Like, this is what God tells us to do sometimes. Ooh, it's the manifest destiny of it all for me.
1: The only reason they can say that with peace in their heart is because they know they'll never be on the receiving side of that. Absolutely. The second that looks the teeniest bit threatened, all hell breaks loose. And then Mm. it's like, oh, no, 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 we have a problem. We have a problem. That can't be what's going on. That's arbitrary then. Anybody could claim that text and say the exact same thing. But if it counts Mm -hmm. against them, oh, no.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And people have claimed this text. And people have misused this text. And so bringing the the womanist wisdom, I'm like a seamstress. Mm. Uh, I've said this uh, in some places, I bring together uh, various wisdoms and various stories in order to look at something and say, Mm. is this right? Is this prescriptive Mm. or descriptive, right? And and so being able to sit with that and, and to challenge that, right? Yeah, and so I just think that because people have used this text.
1: <laughs> I guess for somebody who was really struggling with really difficult texts of violence, one way I've, I've approached it, and I would love to hear how, how do you approach it personally? If we're mature enough emotionally, we can hold difficult things in tension and in contradiction and, and just hold them and not have to have every single last thing laced down. <laughs> but for the really difficult texts about Killing babies, things like this. One particular point I've come to be able to hold some of that is that the men who wrote the Bible are doing the best they can with the information they can, trying to understand God as best they can. And that you do the best you can with the knowledge you can, but it tends to reflect your culture and your ambitions. That's kind of where I stand on the most violent things. For instance, I'm not going to apologize for what when God seems badly behaved. (laughs) I'm not going to try to look for a a silver lining or say, well, it probably didn't mean that it meant this. I'm just going to be like, yeah, that's super confusing and it seems horrifying and yeah, I don't know, except for that maybe this reflects the culture and not the bigger entity or whatever we're talking about if we're speaking of God. That doesn't suffice for too many people and it hardly suffices for myself.
2: I I think one, I'm not above an I don't know.
1: Right, exactly. Um, Thank
2: you. Like, I, uh, somebody asked me, how do you hold this intention? Child, I do not know. (laughs) This is a hard saying. Um, Right. (laughs) But I, we have to, you know, as do I believe in God? Yes. Do I believe specific things about God? Yes. Uh, Are there things that are hard sayings in scripture that don't reconcile with other things I know to be true? Yes. Mm -hmm. It also helps that the Bible is not one collected thing. I know Mm -hmm. that that is hard and that's almost heresy to some people. The Bible, you can buy it as one collected work. Yes. Mm -hmm. It is a library. Mm -hmm. It is a collection of works Mm -hmm. that I know this feels so Uh, you like to tussle with it. When people ask me, well, how can God be this in this book? And how can God be that in that book? Mm -hmm. Um, The same way uh, uh, I don't go to Lisa's book, uh, you know, insert commercial for Lisa's book, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, The Wild Land Within, you know, I don't go to there for what I would go to for things that I would find in Cat in the Hat. Right Like they are two different books with two different purposes.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Similarly, I don't have to hold this tension between all the books because that's exhausting. Mm. To your question, Will Gaffney wrote and on her blog one time, she she wrote about the nature of violence in the Bible, and she wrote, uh, when she's talking to her students about this subject, uh, she said, "I ask my students if these portrayals tell us more about who God is or more about who ancient folks were, and how they understood God. And Mm -hmm. that is super helpful to me. Mm -hmm. You can go in with a simplistic idea that all scripture, is infallible, it's Mm -hmm. inerrant, uh, it's inspired, and not have to think through the implications of those thoughts.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, But what has inspired me to you? Mm -hmm. Uh, For some, inspired means that God literally took over, possessed a person uh, past their understanding and was just writing through their hands. It was just a ghost possession. Mm -hmm. For other people, maybe me, I feel the inspiration in the the work of the spirit when I'm doing some activities. It's uh, when you're writing and you catch that flow that you know the spirit is present Mm -hmm. or you're playing the piano and you know that what you're composing is not just your knowledge, you know, there's other work here, you yeah. know, there's a presence here. Um, you know, there's somebody in the fire uh, with you.
3: Yeah.
2: To that end, yes, culture doesn't form the way that I'm inspired. Like
3: mm-hmm. the
2: spirit is not transcending my ability to play piano um when I when I feel the inspiration, but the spirit is using years of work that i put into the piano and making something beautiful and so to that end i know that ancient folks had really clear thoughts on who is the community and who is the other how do we treat the other how do we obtain land
1: and to your point about january 6th rioting and taking over the capital did that tell us more about god or the people they would say we're christians we're god they're, if they're taking stories of that time you know these are stories about god working through us we are inspired by god to do this Ooh. would that tell us right would that tell us about god or would that tell us what they felt inspired to do because how they view god mm-hmm. they view god as hey we're taking the country back we are uh, allowed to do anything we want to do we can hit police officers with fire extinguishers or whatever you know poke Mm -hmm. people with like spears with the flying poles. I I think that it's interesting to think that we're not that different from the people who were writing the Bible, who were sometimes, and you look in the Psalms, the cursing Psalms, you know, you're Mm -hmm. seeing people who are expressing love for God and sometimes just purely just in love with God and so trusting and also Mm -hmm. really fed up (laughs) and really Mm -hmm. upset right and and that is all this kind of co-creating with god and yet there's sinfulness in people's hearts right there's mm-hmm. supposed to be jubilee years of jubilee but they're not doing the years of jubilee they're not people aren't getting set free mm-hmm. there's supposed to be certain things going on and their actuality it's full of flaws
2: yeah i agree i when i think of uh, of our sacred text i think of i don't know all of the dynamics that happened in history, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There are incredible uh, accounts of God's uh, mighty acts and -hmm. God's provision, God's voice speaking to a particular people. And I have to hold the sacredness of that, the holiness of this account Mm -hmm. from ancient peoples, right? And that is what my spirituality says. I, I, I have to hold these accounts sacred. And as a theologian uh, and scholar, I have to make meaning of interpreting these texts, right? So yes, doing the work to study the history, but also making meaning because to your point, people are making meaning of these texts. They're making, well, if God was this, what does that mean for me today? And the right type of theologian and scholar can help to ask the right questions, right? Is God still doing that today? Who is God speaking that to, right? If God said, go into this town and kill everyone, is God still speaking that same thing today, right? Mm -hmm. Is God saying to take over and establish a kingdom with God at the center? Is that what God is currently doing? How do you know? And so that meaning making is really powerful as you know i bring my social location and my own mm. uh knowledge not just biblically and historically but from my social location as one who is enslaved by people with toxic ideologies oh. what meaning can we make together here you know so mm-hmm. it's important
1: you're reminding me too that of what the typically the prophets would talk about too because the prophets would get killed for what they say <laughs> mm-hmm. and they would usually call out corruption. They would usually say, hey, you're abusing the poor, you're stealing from them, you're, the courts are unfair, and they would get killed for that. And mm-hmm. it seems like there was truth to be found, and there was exploitation going on all the time. And there's mm-hmm. like a record, I think it was a, a professor of mine in, in seminary said, the Bible isn't the revelation, it's the record of the revelation. So you're getting some record of what people felt was revealed to them. Mm -hmm. but you're also getting all the culture and you're getting all the problems and you're getting all of the the stuff. It's not like a how-to, like here's how to, if you're king, take a woman like Bathsheba and and have a progeny that will divide the kingdom. It's not a how-to, but it's it's what happened. Mm -hmm. I just wonder about like a role as a theologian that is also a prophetic role that speaks the truth, that's uncomfortable, that not everybody's going to want to hear for instance, about softness, about nonviolence, mm. about mm. forgiveness, about mm. or standing up and confronting when it's uncomfortable to confront. Like doing the hardest work is something that a prophet will do, maybe a theologian will do. It's the necessary work that brings about wholeness again to us. But it's also usually completely countercultural. It's usually the opposite of what's really going on by the powerful and the wealthy, perhaps.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think so. Right. You know, I think of Howard Thurman and I think of Martin Luther King Jr. as you were talking. Mm. And what's sad and, and beautiful about Howard Thurman's work is he's attempting to make sense of God and make sense of the sacredness of Black people in a time where people were interpreting these same scriptures. They had distinct thoughts about the humanity and lack of humanity against Black people and others and Indigenous people. And, and really everyone who was now white, um, they had distinct thoughts and they had scriptures that were helping them make sense of their thoughts, leading to Ooh. things like 3 compromise, etc. But I think of Howard Thurman coming up in his day, I think he was born in 1899 and trying to make sense of a world that wasn't making sense for him
3: Mm
2: -hmm. and um, how that informed Martin Luther King Jr. um, I believe it was sometime in seminary where he read Jesus and the Disinherited, I believe. And same scriptures, but it was leading him to the softer way of subversiveness, right? Mm -hmm. And it was leading him not to be domineering, even when Uh, reading the scriptures of the Exodus, which for some Black liberationists, that is an empowering, almost warlike cry for Martin Luther King Jr. He went countercultural and really found life in this peace and softness as a way to subvert the powerful. Um, And so I'm curious how, you know, I will want to pick his brain in the days to come of, why did you go that way? Um, because it did cost him his, his life, but he had to make these distinct choices to go that prophetic route.
1: I'd love to add to that, that even though he was nonviolent, super, super committed to nonviolence, there are still going to be his opponents who would be like, yeah, you're still violent. You're still a troublemaker. You're still this." Yeah. You know, there are still going to be people who pin that on him. I mean, not so much now that he's like, has a holiday. And he's like, you know, people call him and act like Mm -hmm. they were for him all the whole time. But back in the day, there were a lot of people who were like, no, he's he's too. Because to do something like a boycott or or a a sit-in or march was, whoa, 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 that's violence. Even though, of course, it's nothing compared to what could be done. Like you could take up arms, you could destroy things, you could do all kinds of things. And I think be justified. Yeah, to be honest. Mm. But this was purposefully, no, we're going to resist. We're going to let you know, no more of this, but we're not going to do anything, any kind of physical violence with words or deeds. I guess it's just the the matter of resisting will still get you in trouble, basically, but that it's Mm -hmm. still worth it. This is the softer way, but we can't expect that the softer way will be even accepted. Yeah, it will be still a challenge. It's seen as a threat and a challenge. We know that kind of going in could be committed to to softness without giving up and being exasperated.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well said. I agree.
1: Mm. I mean, otherwise he wouldn't have been put in jail. <laughs> He'd been like, fine, you go, go on with your little march. You know, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> they were pretty upset. Uh, mm-hmm. But what's interesting about his legacy too is that as we read some of his writings today, they're totally evergreen. And yet I think our hearts are different now there's a frustration I see in just cultural society in general that is more aggressive, that is more impatient, that is more ready to be violent in words and maybe in deeds. That the same discipline was spiritually formed in people in the civil rights movement to be completely peaceful and not fight back when they're getting their heads beaten in. It's just is such an incredible testimony to the mm-hmm. spiritual maturity of Martin Luther King Jr. and Mm. all of the people involved. I just think of that time in awe and think it's not my generation. So I don't probably don't really understand it very well, but Mm. to aspire to be that softness, that gentleness, but so so strong and so firm too.
3: Yeah, I agree. Mm.
1: I don't know if there's anything else that's on your heart that you want to share Whatever you're working on, or whatever you'd like to read to us, or anything like that, mm. you could share.
3: Um, <laughs> hmm.
2: I will illuminate something that's helpful along, kind of along this topic that we were just riffing on. I have been reading this year, Flesh by Cole Arthur Riley again.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, it's good. Um, it's a good book. It was best book that I read last year. And then this book, it's called Black Imagination. It's curated by Natasha Marin. It's beautiful as it asks these three questions at the beginning of the book, these three thoughts. It's imagine a world where you feel safe, valued, and loved. And there's these beautiful almost miniature essays, um, like super miniature essays from Black people and their experiences of trying Mm -hmm. to imagine a world where they could feel that. And some are heartbreaking as they, you know, as they confess, I can't even picture that in a dream. I found myself weeping as you know, people are saying I can't even be fictitious about that. Other people saying what it would feel like to go out into the streets mm. and not be judged and to not have fear, right? And so I think mm. of that, especially in light of our conversation and knowing that I am a Christian and Christianity has a dark heritage. That is violent. That mm. doesn't listen. Mm. Um, that can be oppressive. And so, when I think of in in the work that I do with the Bible and violence, mm-hmm. um, with the Shiloh Project and and flesh, and my writings. Uh, In the podcast that I do, I am trying to help create a vision for a better world where people really can answer that. Like, where Mm. would I feel that safety? Where Mm. would I feel that love and that belonging? It's So essentially, it's sketching out a vision for home. um, Mm. And the concept of home is, is what I'm the most jazzed about in this season of my life.
3: Yeah.